Welcome to episode 75 of Between the Times, a podcast of Christ Church Presbyterian here in Charleston, South Carolina. I'm uh, here with my two uh, dear friends, uh, Dr. Gabriel Williams and Reverend Ross Hodges. Good to be with you guys. And as we get started on this episode, um, which will be a very non-controversial episode, by the way, uh, I want to ask you guys a question. Okay. Are you woke? Are <laughs> you woke? Well, I had my second cup of coffee, so I'm getting there. <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm almost, I'm almost woke enough to, to realize that uh, I'm alive today. Okay. Well. Let's think about the grammar. Are you past tense? Uh, woke. Um, yeah. Mm, no. Te- te- technicalities, Gabe. Leave it, leave it to the college professor to talk about grammar. Well, we are here to talk today um, about a recent lecture uh, that was given at Covenant College by uh, Jamar Tisby, who has been uh, a, a voice for uh, thinking through. Uh, modern uh, ills connected to racism, systemic racism in our culture. And um, uh, he's been a bit of a lightning rod um, in, in reform circles in the PCA. And uh, while we're not going to just speak only about his lecture, um, we want to talk about the whole idea of being woke uh, as our, our culture is embracing this term and really the term meaning, are you uh, aware uh, of the systemic racism in our culture and in institutions and so forth? And um, what do we think about that as Christians? And there are many people that are struggling with white guilt and wondering what to do and how to respond and what are our gospel responsibilities in our uh, in, our, in our culture, in our family, in our workplaces, in regards to these things. So, uh, so glad that uh, Gabe is here with us today to be able to help us think through these issues as well. The first thing I want to do, though, is to read a section of Jamar's lecture uh, where he basically reconstitutes Matthew 23 <laughs> uh, to, to communicate his, his message. Uh, he says this, and it's the, the, the chapter, of course, in Matthew where uh, Christ gives his uh, seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. Jamar says, Woe to you, racists and racial moderates, hypocrites, for you hold events to commemorate civil rights activists and read books about the martyrs of anti-racism, saying, if we had lived during the civil rights movement, we would not have taken part with the racists in shedding the blood of the protesters. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons and daughters of those who murdered Martin Luther King Jr. Fill up then the measure of your slaveholding and segregationist fathers and mothers. You racists and racial moderates, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you social justice warriors and community organizers and activists, some of whom you will put in jail and some you will call Marxists in your churches and troll on social media, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Medgar Evers to the blood of Emmett Till, who you lynched in Mississippi. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon millennial and Gen Z generations. End quote. <laughs> um, 
very non-controversial kind of <laughs> statement there, I think. Um, interesting upon first reading how Jamar will add to racist, racial moderates, um, trying to really spread that net as far as he can uh, to, to bring in people into this conversation. Um, what are your, I'll ask you, Gabriel, what are your initial thoughts with this, uh, this approach, this, this statement? Um, what is he saying here that, uh, is, is helpful for us to, to think through, uh, what, what here may be, may be unfair or unhelpful? So, uh, a couple of things we're saying is that this was not a sermon. This was a academic lecture. And so that means the tone of this is meant to be not pastoral in nature. It's more or less a discussion of a topic that uh, Jamar has studied a lot of. Uh, I think this is part of his dissertation work, as yeah. I, if I recall. Yeah. And it's something that he's very passionate about as a whole. And so it's not a sermon. It's not pastoral in nature. This is a much more teaching, didactic sort of thing that he's intending to do here. Probably the most important thing to take from this uh, in terms of uh, how he applies Matthew 23 is that oftentimes you will hear in an unbalanced version of Christians speaking of the gospel as if there is no ethics that the Christians require to live. Now, the gospel is not ethics. That's very clear. But it's important for Christians to think about ethics. It's important to think about why do you call something good? Why do you call something evil? What is the proper response when you have the opportunity to correct people. And so this is all the push and understanding that ethics is a non-negotiable for the Christian. And what Jamar on just one level was trying to show here is that to say that you love God, to say that you are being biblically faithful, and yet you are having ethically reprehensible positions or views of people, or in terms of his references, if you are a lot, uh, complicit in assassinations of black men or any other minority in Jim Crow South, if you ignore it as if it didn't happen, there's real complicity there. That is a not just a matter of just uh, you know indifference. There's guilt there if you're willing to say that it does not matter that there was a time and in, in place in this country where there was lynching going on and people just kind of turn the other way is unpolite discussion among polite people. That's a sinful disposition. Mm -hmm. And at the heart of it, that's what Jamar is getting at is that to say that what's going, what went on in the basically from the twenties through the seventies, where you had a number of deacons, ruling elders, possibly teaching elders, um, participating in lynching and, People knew it and just simply said things happen or you allowed it to happen because you agreed to it in part. That is the focus of where the actual uh, condemnation comes. Mm. And that to me should be taken seriously. That uh, even if you apply this today uh, in terms of an application at this point, when we think about ethics, these are not things that are matter of indifference. What you believe about the law of God, what is permissible and what is required uh, matters. When you stand up for, when you support or stand when evil things happens, that's a indictment upon Christians as a whole, if that is 
indeed your position. Now, that's to me the most positive thing you should take from this. But there's a lot of things wrong with the application because Matthew 23 is Jesus's harshest statements about pretty much any group of people that you get in the gospel accounts. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that is common to many people is to apply the woes to the Pharisees to basically what we today call uh, hypocrites and legalists. Mm -hmm. The real difference here is that there's a specific condemnation to the Pharisees because they played a very specific role in the history of Israel. And when Jesus actually is on earth um, doing his earthly ministry here. And so when you read this in Matthew 23 verses 1 and 2, scribes and Pharisees are sitting in the chair or the seat of Moses. That's a very specific seat of authority. It's not just a elder somewhere. It's not just a pastor. These are the actual official shepherds of Israel. And if you go back to your Old Testament readings, one of the major condemnations of the prophets was that you would have false shepherds who would arise and those false shepherds would distract you or basically pull you away from the salvation that God presents. So the Pharisees' issues wasn't just that they had a number of ethical blind spots. They were actually perverting the gospel. Turning people away from the Messiah. They were turning people away from Christ himself. That's a different type of condemnation than you have for a professing believer who commits sinful acts because at that point you can actually call that person to repentance. Here, the Pharisees are actually engaging in the turning away of national Israel from seeing their promised Messiah. It's a very different sort of scenario. And so while there's an application that can be presented to leaders, pastors, etc., it's important not to miss the actual historical event going on. It's not so far after this chapter in 23 where we get the actual vineyard parables mm -hmm. in which the actual, you can say, lamp of Israel in terms of the Pharisees is removed. That Jesus is actually saying, I'm taking away your actual seat of authority. I'm taking away your actual ministry mm -hmm. as a whole. It's a very different uh, type of picture. Now, what this means in terms of a very practical uh, kind of take-home point is when you apply the woes of the Pharisees to, let's say, uh, Christians who you believe have committed sinful atrocities in the past, you have to have some type of nuance associated with it lest you conflate the two together and lose the heart of the condemnation in Scripture and also, in one sense, um, make a statement that the people who supported Jim Crow or basically were uh, implicit in kind of keeping the system up, if you're saying they the woes of the Pharisees applies to them, you're also saying those people in Jim Crow South never had the gospel either. And you're basically making the statement that, you know, some others have said this, is that it is impossible to have been in Jim Crow South to been around that time and maybe not have turned a passive eye to things. It's impossible for a lot of people to make that assumption that if you're Jim Crow South and you didn't actively fight against it, then you never had the gospel. And that is where most of the people debating is going here. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to say your ethics is horrible 
and flawed and sinful, you need to be repented. It is interesting that and saying you never even had the gospel at the first in the first place because you practiced either a complicit uh, indifference to Jim Crow South or even among uh, Reformed Presbyterians, you have slave masters in your history. That's which, a very different distinction. Which there. essentially, uh, it would it would seem that the uh, implication of that position would be that if you have any kind of sin or error in the church, you must not have the gospel. Period. Yeah, and one of the things that uh, one of the things that the whole discussion in evangelical history has been on concerning justification by grace through faith is to simply state that there is the gospel that is the means by which sinful men come to God and then there's the fruit of that gospel which is what ethics often well should be yeah. ethics how then comes, shall we live how then shall we live comes yeah. after what God has done for you yeah. and that's the pattern of scripture when you conflate the two that's when you see a lot of now this type of conflation is not unique in church history we've seen people uh, blend together ethics, sanctification, justification as one big thing numerous times in the past. This is this one latest iteration of that basic point is that in the effort to strongly denounce sinful actions, some people try to, in some way or fashion, blend ethics back into matters of justification. Now, we can talk about this all the way back to Richard Baxter's days, if you want, with the neonomian yeah. controversy. Yeah. This isn't new. It just reappears in different forms sure. in different ways. And so, what uh, if, Jamar, if all Jamar Tisby is saying is that there is a legitimate role of analyzing the ethics of Christians and commenting about that in the past history, then my opinion is that no one should debate that issue. Because ethics is necessary for the Christian. It's necessary to understand it. It's necessary to build a foundation where your ethics comes from. However, if you're making a statement that says that the behavior of Christians means they never even had the gospel in the first place, you're now, in my view, are blending things that should not be blended. That's one of the base, you know, not to sound kind of, uh, not to be a little cocky or arrogant about it, but this is one of the reasons that so much emphasis is spent on discussing justification by grace. It is the free grace of God that redeems sinners, not the sinner's actions to merit God's favor. There's a reason that keeps coming out because in today's world, it's still the same types of issues you've had in the medieval world where a person's actions are the means by which they try to bring to God and say, here's why I should merit favor or here's how I prove my you know, relationship to you as being favorable. Uh, it's it because was, that's intuitive. Yeah, it's that's counterintuitive the, yeah. to be saved by grace, by the merits of another. Yeah. And so we're always dealing with it's that. It's deeply counterintuitive to say that not my works, but the works of Christ is what actually redeems the sinner. And I think Reformed Christians should be the ones who speak about that most clearly because it is confused and conflated in many different places. So this brings up an important point, um, and we were discussing this before the, the episode, and that is that whether it's this issue or whether it's other ethical issues that people get very passionate about, um, too often it is the case where the gospel is not central to the discussion. 
what becomes central to the discussion is the issue itself and a lot of the fiery, sometimes angry rhetoric that's connected to it. And so rather than really making the gospel central in this conversation and, and seeing it as the ultimate solution, we end up looking at the complexities of the particular issue and trying to uh, figure those out and get everybody on the same page as, as, as it goes to those complexities, which are not easy issues, particularly when it comes to the, uh, the, this, this issue, because what we're talking about here today is not, you know, that we look around, say, in our own denomination in the PCA, where, you know, our denomination is where Covenant College is a member of, and, and Jamar is speaking in this context, and he's saying these things to the students. Uh, it could, could Jamar walk into a number of churches in the PCA and say, oh, these people are a bunch of racists? I, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I haven't seen that. Now, whether there are, um, you know, vestiges of, of, of racism in some of the churches in the Deep South and all of that, I mean, perhaps there are. Maybe, there probably are some there. Um, but as a general rule, I mean, I, I've been in the PCA for 20 years, and I grew up in California, and I, ne- I never really saw you know, explicit racism growing up. And this whole thing is a bit new to me being um, from California to the South. But uh, what he is talking about, because he, and he's bringing in this moderate racism language, is he's, he's trying to expand the net to include more people who maybe aren't active in coming against systemic racism, which it's hard to even know exactly what that is or how to fight against it. Um, it seems. So, what are your what are your thoughts about that in terms of how how do we keep the gospel at the center of this conversation and as the solution to this conversation or to this this problem? And also, what are we to do with some of the the language that Jamar uses here, which seems to me to want to sort of make everybody who is not actively fighting against systemic racism in different ways that they are actually the sons and daughters of those who killed Luther King. So, uh, there's a little se- several things. <laughs> <laughs> several things there, but we'll start with the first kind of basic thing. So one of the things that you know, if you're, you know, a reformed presbyterian, you know that if you open up your Westminster larger catechism, it goes through a very long exposition of the 10 commandments. And that exposition of the 10 commandments is meant to be a way for Christians at that time and also today to understand where ethics is grounded. Mm-hmm. And when you come to it, just like when you read in Exodus uh, 20, it starts off with, I am the Lord your God who has redeemed you out of Egypt. Then you have the listing of the commandments. The idea is that you don't even get the chance to apply the ethics of the Ten Commandments until you grasp the reality that you've already been redeemed from your bondage to sin and your bondage to Satan here. So, at the heart of the matter, that's our starting point. Now, that being said, this is why when Christians discuss ethics, it's different than how you can study ethics at a university. Because Christian ethics is based explicitly upon the law of God. And the law of God is not given to you from a judge who's condemning you. It's given to you by the God who saved you and redeemed you. It comes to you differently. Your relationship to the law changes once you have come to Christ. Yeah. So, you know, again, for those who who remember their kind of conversion experience, think about what happened before you came to Christ and your love of sin and hostility to God's law 
Think of what happens when the Spirit of God works upon your heart to uh, regenerate you and to bring you into the fold. You now have a hatred towards sin and you now have a love towards God's law. And what good preaching, what good churches do is that when the word of God is faithfully preached, the light of God's word and his law shines upon your heart in various ways. So that's why in one sense, I'm very happy to hear that when matters of race and injustice are talked about, it's doing part of what we expect the church to do with its members. Some people understand the background of these things better than most other people because, again, not everyone's going to spend the time studying, as Jamar has done, in terms of uh, Southern U.S. history from basically the 40s on to today. Um, and someone like Jamar plays an important role in actually saying there's a blind spot in your ethical application of the six commandments and loving the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. There's a real sense of that need to be shined upon people. And what I have uh, experienced since kind of um, moving back to the South is that there are a lot of things that Southerners perhaps took for granted just because it was never called out to them, such as some uh, inherent biases and stereotypes, the understanding that, or just the belief that all whites and blacks basically don't mix together. There's, there's still vestiges of that. Mm -hmm. When I travel through portions of Southern Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi and portions of Tennessee, there's still vestiges of that that exist. And what's good... Uh, gospel preaching, what good uh, practical application of it is to shine light upon the parts of your heart that needs to be changed and transformed by the Spirit. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about ethics, what we're basically saying is that the light of God's Word is shining upon the darkness that's still there and that gradually over time, you begin to see that the heart changes. Now, in a college setting, ethics is basically do this because this is what is good to do. Mm. There's no expectation that from the heart you change, the expectation is that the behavior changes explicitly. Mm. What we demand from preaching of the gospel is that you will obey the law not as a mechanical way, but from the heart. And the honest uh, assessment is that that's difficult and time-consuming, meaning... We can say we can get formal obedience or I guess what people call legal obedience pretty simply just by imposing a law and punishing people for it. But if you want evangelical obedience or loving obedience, that has to be the Holy Spirit working upon the heart mm. so that the law is actually kept from the heart. And that's ultimately what we want Christian ethics to be. And it's an actual transforming of the heart to align to God's law. And what that usually entails is a long process of sanctification. So I may have mentioned this in a, another podcast, but let's think about the state of the South in 1958. Let's take Atlanta, Mobile, Birmingham as our cities. Think about the ways in which good Christians viewed their neighbors. There's a distinction between the white Christian you knew and the black Christian who was on the other side in his part of town. There was a concept in the mind of some people. There was still a curse of ham going on. Sure. There was still a mentality in which it was good for God to separate the races, kind of right. a table of nations sort of thing. 
they're still the they were still at that time the mentality that there's a impurity in the blood if you mix yeah. between the two there's yeah. miscegenation that was even not, a, not image bearers, yeah. not divine image bearers. Exactly. That that was still considered relatively normal in mm-hmm. 1958, and it's still shocking for modern people to come to that conclusion. But that's still normal. Mm-hmm. Now, if that's where you started at, in terms of various locations, and you watch the children of that generation, think about how generation my millennial generation. And the Generation Z views race compared to their parents and grandparents. It's a remarkable difference. It doesn't mean it's eliminated. Because, again, it takes time and long journey for that to kind of get worked out. But look at the progress that's happened. And it's not just because it's unpopular to be racist today. There are still places where you can still, if you wanted to, uh, hold hostility, anger, and various sorts of racist views in your heart to no one will ever check you about it if you just don't act out upon it. Mm-hmm. The reality is that what we see in terms of generations passing through is that there are a number of people who were, say, children or maybe adults in that era who have seen their sinfulness. Now, it hasn't been, com- they're not completely finished and their work of sanctification, but there's been explicit progress. And that's because over time, the word of God was being applied to their hearts concerning you should love your neighbor as yourself. Love not just means that you don't harm them. It means that you actually, as the sixth commandment says, you seek after their welfare. You defend them when they're attacked. You protect them from the things that you can have a sphere yeah. influence on. That's been preached for years and years and years. And the reality is that there's been market improvements. Hmm. Now, from my perspective, you know, thank the Lord I was born in 84 and not 54. Hmm. Um, but thank the Lord for that. But what that means for me is that when I came into this world and kind of becoming an adult, my experience is that I've seen numerous people who would tell me their own testimony to say, you know, in the 60s, you know, yeah, I, I was a coward because I was willing to call people names and basically watch people get sprayed of hoses. And I just sat there and just watched it and did nothing about it. They can admit that to me in a very public way. Yeah. And the reality is that's something to rejoice in. Now, to me, that's the essence of being grateful for progress that has happened now, I can harp on things that are not as perfect as they should be, but then again, you're now making a statement that are you dissatisfied with how God has worked in the hearts of his children and it's taken a long time for that to happen. And so from my perspective, when we talk about issues of race and injustice, Yes, if you want to make the argument that there's no racism that ever existed, well, currently exists today, I think you're a fool, personally. If you want to make the argument today that it is much better than it was 35, 40 years ago, that's where I personally am. Uh, It's very clear that what has changed over time for Christians has not just been political pressure not to be racist. What has actually happened over the last 30, 40 years has been conviction of sin. Mm. And that conviction of sin 
comes about because God's word has been preached. And the reality is that men like Jamar and others who have maybe been a little bit too far in what they're saying have been sounding this alarm for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, it clicked that what they're doing, I may not go to your all the way to your end conclusions, but at the heart, I see what you're saying, that mm -hmm. I call myself a Christian and yet there's someone next to me who doesn't love their neighbor. I think of someone like Ligon Duncan in this sense. I may not do everything that, say, a woke person wants me to do, but at the end of the day, I now see that I did not love my neighbor as God's word says, and I need to repent of that. Mm -hmm. And that is what we, we have seen. Because Ligon recently yeah, said that. Exactly. And there have been a lot of people in that position. I don't go as far as maybe they want us to in terms of maybe those who call themselves woke, but they see in essence that something legitimate is true here. John Piper is another example. I don't go, John Piper hasn't gone as far as some of the woke people have, but John Piper can say very emphatically, I sinned greatly in that era. And do you know where Ligon and John Piper both grew up? No, I don't actually. Greenville, South Carolina. Ah, there you mm -hmm. go. And it's probably the case with a lot of uh, people who grew up in in the South, in particular cities, that that it was part of their everyday life to see segregation and racism um, and ungodly, uh, an unbiblical understanding of of uh, of the blacks. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's. It's interesting. I wanted to ask um, Gabe about the helpfulness or unhelpfulness of this kind of rhetoric, because I think part of what I wanted to ask earlier was um, we need to get back to the gospel. We need to get back to uh, we need to get back to the the heart of what is actually going to bring change. And part of the problem that I have seen and heard in some lectures and sermons on this issue is the negligence to come back to the gospel, to Christ himself as the solution to these things. Because at the end of the day, if I'm going to love my uh, black neighbor or my Vietnamese neighbor or, uh, or my uh, you know, Dutch neighbor who is, has differences in the way that they grew up, the way I grew up, and, and uh, uh, that you know, there are going to be differences that are going to make us perhaps even uncomfortable around each other initially. Like, how, how do we overcome those things in terms of evangelism, in terms of our own just perspectives and being able to love them well? Um, it, it has to be the gospel, right? We have to get back to that because that's going to put us in our place, as it were. Mm -hmm. It's going to humble us and make us recognize that no matter what color your skin is or what background you have or what level of education you have or what, uh, you ha what how much money you have in your bank account, at the end of the day, we're all sinners in the sight of God. We're on the, we're on the same level playing field, as it were, mm -hmm. and before our holy God. And, and so... What I want to ask is, you know, when when Jamar comes to a PCA college and says, you know, woe to you, racists and racial moderates, hypocrites, and he says, you witness against yourself as sons and daughters of those who murdered Martin Luther King, fill up then the measure of your slaveholding and segregationist fathers and mothers. 
you racist and racial moderates, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Um, what do we, how, how do we deal with this um, from your perspective? How do we, how do we as, uh, as, as white, you know, uh, evangelical Reformed Presbyterians deal with this kind of, of blast, as it were, um, where it seems that when he uses the term racial moderate, that, he, that that's really loaded and I'm, I'm just yeah. not quite sure how um, white, white evangelical Presbyterians, how they're supposed to, to, to receive that and how they're supposed to respond to it. What, is he, what do you think he wants to see there? I think what uh, Jamar is probably trying to get at is that you can be, well, I think the position is maybe the argument is that guilt comes in two ways, either by explicitly doing the evil acts or being a indifferent observer of those acts. And so kind of the moderate position in that sense would be the person who would just, I may not actually engage. So take the 1940s and 50s. I may not be a Klansman who are seeking out people to lynch, yeah. but I know people okay. in my congregation who have done that before, okay. and I just watch it happen. So let's move out of the 50s and yeah. 60s from it. So because, today, yeah, I have I no idea what that would mean <laughs> in today's time. Unless what you mean by that is there's a difference between those who are, let's say, currently racist today and somehow they are instituting policies and in local governments that are either uh, disenfranchising minorities in some way or fashion. That would be perhaps the actual racist. Maybe the moderate in that case would be someone, and let's make this political then, <laughs> someone who would either vote along lines that supports policies that would disenfranchise people or basically say, it's not my it's not my uh, purview. It's not my position to really get involved in the fight. And so I perceive his racial moderate statement as being a statement of saying it's sinful to be on the sidelines when there's real injustice going on. That's my perception of it. Okay. Yeah, that, my my question was going to be along these lines as well. Is you know he's he's speaking to college students here. A lot a lot of the audience um, that is listening to this online would be. Uh, millennials or those younger than millennials and so for those of us who didn't grow up in the 40s and 50s or were not you know whose parents say didn't participate in these kind of things um, how do we take the 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 appropriate application for the the alarm bells that are being sounded by you know someone like Jamar and and think through those biblically with, without having experienced some of these things, maybe not having any sort of firsthand experience with what we would consider overtly racist activity. Mm -hmm. um, and then secondly, where is the room in, the in, in interpreting the data for Christian freedom? And what I mean by that is there will be those who define racism in a certain way mm -hmm. and those who define racism in a different way. And can they exist at the same time in the church, and therefore uh, have a, a have the Christian freedom to both believe the gospel, love Christ, hate racism, but disagree on the particulars of what that looks like, and therefore what the solution may be? Okay, and so that is now the heart of the critique of the speech, and 
not just this speech, but this is part of those who may identify themselves as woke Christians or sympathetic to position. One of the things I mentioned before is that we define Christians define ethics by an actual examination of God's law. And so if you go to the confession, we speak about things like the general equity of the law being applied to various things. Mm -hmm. And so the problem with most of the woke crowd is that generally speaking, there's very little uh, desire to actually exegete what part of the law is being broken by the things they're critiquing people over. So, for instance, 40s and 50s, that's easy. That's Sixth Commandment, straightforward. Sure, yeah. all the commandments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 killing and not, yeah, well, well, it's, that's easy. <laughs> yeah, as soon as you come to a place where you view any man not created in the image of yeah. God, I mean, you've, you've already undermined the entirety of Scripture. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so that's easy in that sense, and that's why at that time it's easy to say you violate the law today the problem has been that that definition, as you said, of what it means to be racist has expanded substantially. The definition of institutional racism has morphed a good bit over the last 50 years. Because, again, if you ask someone in 1950s what was institutional racism, they would say Jim Crow. That's the laws. That's the voting laws that are unjust. Sure. Those sort of things. Today... Um, the claim has been from those who are critiquing woke is where are the laws that are still codifying racist sort of things? And then what people will point to would be things like the um, the pipeline from basically neighborhood to prison. They would popularize things concerning drug policies and drug laws, mandatory minimums and things like that. Now, at that point, you don't have to ask the question, OK, those are the laws what particular violation of God's law is that addressing? Yeah. And that's the problem. Because now the belief is that this isn't a law of God issue. This appears to be a political issue, meaning exactly. yeah. Democrat-Republican issue. Which, let's just be honest, that's where a lot of this confusion comes in. Mm -hmm. Because you have complex mm -hmm. political and social situations yeah. that, to, to Ross's question and I think um, uh, if I look at the nature of the question it, it would seem that you're tell me if I'm wrong but that you're implying that you know these issues are complex and, and, and difficult and true Christians can disagree about where a, a road should be placed in the town you know true. whether it should go East or West, and whose homes it should displace. Honest mm -hmm. Christians mm -hmm. who love the Lord can have disagreements about this. Mm -hmm. um, there can be Christians who disagree about some aspects of, of gentrification yeah. and, and sure. all of that. Mm -hmm. you know, can two people be born again mm -hmm. and have different views on that? Well, when the rhetoric gets to a level like it is here in this quote, it seems like there are, there's only one way, mm -hmm. and it's Jamar's way. And it's 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 a, a way that if you disagree with him, you're going to go to hell. I mean, from the from the quote itself, yeah. it's saying you're going to go to hell if you are a racial moderate. Which again, we're still trying to figure out what that exactly means. But if you if there are such things as racist and racial moderates, and racial moderates are going to go to hell, 
then that brings the level of rhetoric in this conversation to a place that, in my opinion, is very dangerous and, and, and is unhelpful at best to, mm-hmm. to push yeah. the conversation forward. Yeah. To me, it sounds like you know, Democrats in Washington, with all the uncharitable assumptions and radical kind of propositions that they're making constantly, or, yeah. or, or Republicans doing the yeah, same just, thing against yeah. Democrats. Yeah. Anybody in Washington. Yeah, yeah. It's, just, yeah. it's just the nature of uh, what we... A lot of critiques we all have of national politics is kind of morphing into church politics yeah. in some sense, and that's what we despise. And, and Gabe, I think that the problem I have is that, you know, when I look back at the 50s and 60s, I see in that moment, you know, the, the more prophetic, you know, small p, things mm-hmm. that Luther King was saying mm-hmm. that were strong, mm-hmm. uh, other things that people were saying that were strong because of the obvious atrocities, um, mm-hmm. segregation, the, you know, uh, the lynchings mm-hmm. and things. I mean, it's just, it's just awful, the, 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 uh, the separate water fountains, the, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it, it's just wicked, obvious wickedness. But when you're talking about complex political, social, civil issues in mm-hmm. society where you have honest disagreement about what is and what is not, you know, uh, racist, um, th- th- that's where we need to have honest, um, um, charitable conversations with one another about about these things. Yeah, I just don't see this as pushing that forward. And the, the reason why is because racist to most people has an immediately negative connotation attached to it. Probably the word that would make most sense to use when it comes to modern day issues would be what types of things are we doing today that perhaps uh, disproportionately affects one group of people over the other. And that's not necessarily a matter of power dynamics and struggles. So we'll, we'll take local Charleston things right now. Uh, we just had an election. And one of the most um, local visceral things that has happened has been the school board election. And that's because we saw the South Carolina state scores. And there's huge disparities within Charleston County. Um, and so... One of the things that's basically being asked at that point is, is that disparity due to hardcore racism that's occurring, how funds are distributed within Charleston County, or are there a whole bunch of other causes that we just don't really know about? But the talking point was the racism, because that was... (laughs) Of course it was. Of course it was the racism. (laughs) And that was, you know, when you looked up the school board, that was basically half the discussion is, are the... It's the distribution of money itself racist. Well, it can be if you're saying that you actually have people who are actually taking money away from local black areas and siphoning them through to, say, Mount Pleasant. Or <laughs> the other possibility is that schools are funded by property taxes and property values are higher in Mount Pleasant, so that means school funding would be different. Right. Now, what that means is that's not a racist issue, but that is a distribution issue. But people are making it. Right? Yeah. So yeah. if you call that racist... Yeah. That means you're now going to blend things that in people's minds is inappropriate. There's a difference between the hostile, not image of God, racist person that you think of and saying property taxes are higher in Mount Pleasant, yeah. so you got more funding there. Those are yeah. not the same thing. And, and, and I love this point because it, it not only brings out the complexity of these issues, but also it brings out that it takes a little while to talk about complex issues. Yeah. And it takes some understanding and some wanting to get at the facts. And, you know, that's not good for, 
your kind of uh, you know power punch on the mm -hmm. TV, the, yeah. the talking point. I'm going to get my jab in, and mm -hmm. that, that kind of conversation, which is what we have mostly in the political arena, yeah. mm -hmm. is is the way now we discuss issues. Um, yeah, yeah I, the point behind my question was, as you brothers are getting at, um, that that there is a complexity here, and and inside the church there should be an understanding that we can be on different sides of complex issues and and still love Christ and Amen. still still be in union with Christ and with one another and that's the way it's been on, on lots of other issues too i mean you look at the history of our country and people can disagree on what is best for the country fiscally or socially or educationally and vote differently on those things and it's a it's a complex issue when you get into it and I, I think racism is the same way and so while in in church there should and in, in the body of Christ there should always be charity towards one another and there should always be a uh, a quick to listen slow to speak and slow to become angry mentality uh, in the body of Christ about the concerns that brothers and sisters have whether that's Jamar or anybody else we should we should be charitable and listen um, but at the end of the day we should all recognize that the critique and the the interpretation of the data and the interpretation of, of what uh, the situation is and what therefore needs to be done it we're gonna come down in different places and that um, we shouldn't be quick to throw out uh, throw out just arguments and uh, or, or accusations that someone is a racist on the one hand or um, or, or you know or, or anything else yeah. on the other hand uh, just because people disagree with us about the application of things because I, I don't know anybody in in my circles who is going to say that, oh no racism is okay that what was happening in the 50s and 60s is okay or if there's anything that even comes close to that today it's okay but I do know people uh, who disagree over fiscal policy, who yeah. disagree over social policy. And and at the end of the day, I, I believe they hold those those uh, positions from um, a heart that, that wants the best for the community as a whole. Uh, not, you know, I mean, I, we're all, we can all be blind to things, uh, but it's not because they're, you know, they're, they want to oppress one particular group of people or, or And another. the assumption is that is that they are, which is the problem. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. Yeah, that assumption is there, and I wanted to mention one one more thing. I know we need to wrap this up, but I want to make the point too that a gospel issue, which people talk about gospel issues all the time, this is a gospel issue. Okay, I think a better way to say that would be this is a an implication of the gospel. I like that language better, and and there are lots of implications of the gospel, lots of them, constellation of them. But we never want to let, as we began the episode with Gabe's helpful words, we never want to let gospel issues or gospel implications eclipse the gospel itself. And how, how often do we allow our, our issues, the things we're passionate about, whether it's this issue, which obviously Jamar is very passionate about, and, and in many respects he should be, although I think that the way he's going at it and his tone and rhetoric is unhelpful uh, to this discussion. But... If Christ isn't at the center of the discussion, if the gospel itself is not 
being lifted up, where it is indeed humbling all of us onto the same level, whether you're a passionate social justice warrior or not. You're both still sinners uh, under uh, uh, God and need Christ in the gospel. And that, there's a humbling that comes with that, right? There's a, there's a humbling that brings us to a point where we can actually talk to each other about these issues without, you know, saying things like this. Um, uh, so, I, you know, and isn't that, I think, a good point to end on, that we need, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and remember right. that, that in him we're all still dealing with the vestiges of sin, and we all need to humble ourselves before one another and submit to one another in love and, and not assume the worst about others and other churches and, you know, well, so-and-so, you know, so-and-so didn't come to the Walk for Life last Saturday, so they must, they must believe in abortion, you know? Uh, I mean, it, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, yeah. it's just ludicrous, and that's kind of the, the spirit, uh, oftentimes, of what I'm getting from some of the woke crowd, is, you know, if you're not doing what I think you should be doing, even though I'm not very clear in what you should be doing, you know, then, then you probably don't understand the gospel. You may not even be a Christian. Uh, that is unhelpful, and it's going to bring further division in the evangelical church, I think. So... Well, on that happy note, um, <laughs> uh, Gabe, special thanks to you for your insights yeah, and you, wisdom. Brother. You are such a blessing to us and, uh, and to this, this podcast. Um, you've been AWOL here for a few weeks, but we're glad you're back, back with us. Well, tenure does that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, great. Well, um, thank you so much for, for listening in. We hope you've been encouraged, and we'll uh, talk to you next time on Between the Times.